Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. From the 179th hour of Election Day, <laughs> it's Election Shock Therapy. I'm Chris Moore, and joining me in the Bethel University Library are... Matt Kukum. Andy Bramson. Guys, we have a whole bunch of things to talk about, even though we still haven't finished calling all of the states yet. Nope. Uh, nevertheless, uh, we're going to run through a super fast uh, set of hot topics all about the election, what to make of it, what we as political scientists can say about it, and what it might mean for the future of American politics. We also want to leave a little bit of time at the end for your questions. So if you're joining us physically or if you're joining us online, uh, you can uh, uh, give us questions. If you're joining us online, go ahead and put those questions in the Zoom chat. Uh, we're gonna, we'll take a look at those and we'll get to those at the end of our time today. I'm going to move quick, guys. First up, Dr. Kukum. Could you give us just a little bit of a quick overview of where we stand in the Electoral College uh, right now? All right, here we go. So I can't hear my uh, audio over the speaker, so I don't know. Are we good? All right. Okay, so I'm going to run through this real quick, and um, hopefully those of you who are uh, here or able to watch the video feed can see our screen. I'm going to run through this really fast. So this is a a slide of the Electoral College where things currently stand, which states are called, which states are not called. Currently, for the called states, Biden has 279 votes in the Electoral College. There are four states that have yet to be called. Um, there's Arizona, Alaska, Georgia, and North Carolina. Currently, in Georgia and Arizona and Nevada, uh, Biden is up um, several thousand votes between you know, 12,000 to 36,000. Um, he, I, if you had to make a projection, he would probably pick up Arizona and Georgia. Um, North Carolina and Alaska are probably going to go for Trump. And so um, in the end, it's likely that you're going to see this map um, in which Biden in the end will probably win 306 votes in the Electoral College and Trump will win 232. Um, so that's the Electoral College in a nutshell. We can unpack specific races. Um, so Moving on to the Senate, so um, a few things that we should note here. So the Democrats had some key pickups in Colorado and Arizona, so the Democratic challengers were able to defeat the Republican incumbents in these states. Um, the Democrats had a couple of key holds um, in Michigan, um, and the Republicans had a flip in Alabama, so they were able to, um, they were able to take back a Senate seat in Alabama. The Republicans had a couple of key holds in Maine and Iowa and South Carolina. And currently, we have a few uncalled races in Alaska and North Carolina, and we have two, um, two Senate races in Georgia that are going to a runoff on January 5th. In all likelihood, the Republicans will get Alaska and North Carolina, um, which will put uh, Republicans at 50 votes in the Senate and Democrats at 48. If Democrats want to tie the Senate and have a tie that can be broken by Kamala Harris, the vice president, they're going to have to win um, both runoffs in Georgia, and that's probably going to be a tall order. Um, and so just looking at how the races broke down in Georgia. So in the 
the, the general, um, I should say, the, the regular Senate election in Georgia, David Perdue, the Republican, won by about 1.8 uh, points. Um, and the spoiler here was probably the Libertarian candidate, Shane Hazel. Um, and Georgia, like a number of states, has a provision that states that in um, state-level races, um, races lower down, if a candidate, no candidate receives an outright majority, it goes to a runoff, right? Um, and so Purdue didn't quite get to over 50%, so there's going to be a runoff. Um, he is the favorite candidate in the runoff against John Ossoff. Um, there's also a special Georgia Senate election as well. Um, and we can talk about this as well. And quick, quick pause, Matt. Yes. Why is there a special election in Georgia? Yes. So basically, the Senate overturns over a six-year period. So only one-third of the Senate is up for re-election every year. So each Senate seat across all of the states uh, basically is on a schedule for when its term, that term is up, right? And so what happens is if a person dies or a senator resigns or dies in office, then basically a governor is going to appoint someone to fill out the rest of that term, but that person will have to get elected to fill out the rest of that term. So there's an appointment to fill in the interim. There is a special election to basically fill out the rest of that term. Um, and that's what you see here. Um, and Georgia also has this weird thing in which basically they combine their primary with their general election and that creates what's called a jungle primary. So you had a whole list of Democrats and Republicans all running against each other, which means that no one's going to get a majority. The combined Republican vote was basically one point ahead of the combined Democratic vote. Um, so you could say that Republicans, you might say, held um, you know, did well in this, you know, both Senate elections. But again, both of these are going to go to runoffs. And in the end, the Republicans are favored. Um, but yeah. it's, it's not a sure thing. There's going to be a lot of money dumped into Georgia in the coming uh, seven or eight weeks. Yeah, just coming to a couple other comments on that. I mean, one is, we, and it's very unusual to have two Senate elections um, in the same state in the same year because they're always going to set it up so that they happen in different years. So two out of three general elections, you'll have a Senate race up in your state, one you won't. Um, we actually just had this situation in our own state of Minnesota last election, 2018, um, where Tina Smith had been appointed by Governor Dayton to replace um, Al Franken, who resigned, um, and then Amy Klobuchar was up for her regular term, right? And so we had that, that kind of weird situation. And then Smith was up again this year because she just got elected to two years to fill out Franken's term. Now she just won a, a full term in her own right. Um, so that's what George is facing, and um, the winner of that special will then only serve two years, and we'll have to face the voters again in um, 2022. So it's a, a kind of unusual setup. The jungle primary is also weird because you could actually theoretically get two people from the same party. And in fact, with our vice president-elect, um, Kamala Harris, right, she, um, that's how she won. She won in a race against a fellow Democrat in California. When they did the jungle primary, it was actually two Democrats made it um, to the December election. So it wasn't a question of whether a Democrat wins. It's just which Democrat was going to win. And I'll just add really quickly that the uh, Georgia uh, races would on paper favor Republicans in both cases. Yes. No, uh, the, the two candidates, John Ossoff, Raphael Warnock, have not exceeded 50% uh, of um, approval uh, in any polling leading up to this runoff. Correct. So you would think that the Republican candidate would have a, would have a, a leg up. But we, you, like you both said, we're going to see a lot of national focus, a lot of money pouring into Georgia. And it's not clear to me whether that gives uh, Georgia Democrats an advantage or whether that uh, actually might cause a, um, a, a blowback. Uh, amongst Georgia voters. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, typically runoffs tend to favor the party that 
um, you know, dominates the state and the party that comes out to vote most consistently, which in Georgia is going to be Republicans on both counts, right? Yeah. Um, however, this is the highest profile uh, runoff uh, set of runoffs that you could imagine, right, that are going to determine the control of the U.S. Senate and whether or not the Democrats get sort of the, the holy grail, the trifecta of the White House, <laughs> the Senate, and the House. Right. So yeah. this is very high profile, and we have, we have basically two months um, for campaigning and fundraising and... Um, all sorts of angsting over this, um, so <laughs> it's going to be it's going to be interesting. So. There's going to be a lot of things happening in these two months too. Yes. The there's several interactive effects because I'm wondering if you think the Georgia race, which on its own would be fascinating, might also be affected by everything else happening in Washington right. uh, as the other parts of the election process wrap up, as, po as, pos as the transition process either begins or doesn't begin. Um, right, so right. let's talk um, about the election process a little bit. We've discussed this on previous podcasts where we've looked at how... Um, uh, how the vote counting kind of went down, and a lot of what we expected as political scientists did happen. It was, it's also caused a lot of, of frustration amongst voters to see vote tallies um, in some states start out very pro-Biden or very pro-Trump and then shift towards the other party as uh, waves of votes come in, and that's still happening in some of our outstanding states. So we've talked about red shifts, blue shifts, and with that has come, especially from uh, Donald Trump and his campaign, claims of voter fraud. Mm -hmm. So we're not gonna go as deeply as we've gone into that in the past. We'll probably come back to it again as we see some of those lawsuits. But Matt, what did some of the, what's the remaining process look like? What do we should be expecting? What should listeners be expecting over the next couple of weeks? Okay, so a, a couple of things to keep in mind. So people think that because it's taking so long to count ballots and to tie up you know, the election results. And why is it taking so long? L let me break it to you. This is fairly normal. It usually takes states um, you know, several weeks to go through the provisional ballots, go through all the sorts of weird types of ballots. I mean, there's ballots from um, that Braille people, like you know, blind people have filled out using Braille, right? I mean, there's all of these little quirky things that have to be filled out, and then they have to sort of count them. They have to deal with um, you know ballots, in which there's some questions about eligibility. They have to sort that out, and then after they count all the ballots, they have a canvassing process in which they go back and recheck all of the math to make sure it's correct. And then, if it's really close, there might be an automatic recount, or a candidate can call for a recount. And right. then that process basically starts afresh, right? <laughs> and then after everything sort of pans out, they will certify the results. Um, and the results never get certified until basically, you know, November, early December. And that's when the deadline is, at least for, um, at least for the Electoral College. And so, so sort of keep that in mind. So, so that's a process moving forward. There is some litigation um, that's currently um, percolating through in several key states. So Georgia, Nevada, Arizona, North Carolina, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. The Trump campaign um, has brought up a number of different um, lawsuits. Um, these regard sort of mail and absentee voting procedures, deadlines for accepting ballots after election day, poll observer access, um, the counting of ballots for voters who may or may not be eligible. Um, there was the most recent lawsuit that's made sort of the biggest headlines is a lawsuit in Pennsylvania. Um, this is regarding um, basically what the Trump administration, or excuse me, the Trump campaign is saying is that there are six, 600,000 ballots that were counted in which there were not any observers present, um, which there are some real factual questions about that. Um, right. There probably were observers present, but that's something that's being claimed. Um, and the requested remedy um, in this case is for 
all 600,000 ballots to actually be tossed, um, which is not a meritorious remedy uh, for the courts because for several reasons. Um, first of all, <laughs> I can't imagine why. Yeah, well, okay, here's the thing. So when, when ballots are received, especially mail ballots are received, they're taken out of the envelopes. The envelope is the only place which there is identifying information for the voter, right? Once right. the ballot has been removed from the envelope and counted through the machines, that ballot cannot be married back to the envelope, right? And so you can't just toss all of the ballots, right? So you would have to actually go back and look at all of the envelopes, look at the information of all the people who voted, and then recheck whether or not every single one of them was eligible. Um, and you would only have an election sort of tossed or redone or the results invalidated if basically there are enough ineligible voters mm -hmm. to surpass the margin of by which the winning candidate won, right? right. Um, and that's probably not going to happen. You might get a few ineligible voters in which, you know, that would make a difference, but it's, it's really not going to. So, so basically the, the short version at this point is there has been very little evidence of any sort of um, errors or fraud um, that would actually invalidate the election results that would actually have an impact in any of the states. And as we looked at with the electoral college math, it's going to take, um, it would take the, the overturning of multiple elections in these states to actually allow Trump to win enough electors in the Electoral College, and that in all likelihood is not going to happen. Right. And is there any chance that uh, a court could, art, could order a state to redo an election? I don't think we have any precedent for actually redoing a presidential election. Um, so I, I find it very difficult to imagine why um, that would be ordered. It would also come into conflict with other requirements, which is that you know, electoral college votes have to be certified by um, early December, right? So there's just not really time. So I, I would say no. I cannot imagine that scenario. Okay. Yeah, because uh, again, you would have to. There would have to be clear evidence that there was errors and fraud that would affect enough ballots yeah. to surpass the the margin of victory, right? Um, and in many of these states, the margin is, of victory is going to be, when it's all said and done, is going to be over 10,000 votes. Right. Um, so even if, you know, a handful, you know, there's every election, even before this election, there's a handful of errors, things yeah. that happen. This is what happens when you, you know, have millions of people voting, right? And, you know, thousands of people counting ballots and inputting results. There's basic human errors. This has always been the case, right? But it's almost never been the case that this results in an election being invalidated. Yeah, I mean, our, our system's pretty pretty reliable in the sense. Like it's, it's kind of inefficient sometimes. It's sometimes kind of archaic, but it's also <laughs> yeah. pretty reliable in terms of actually counting votes pretty well. Um, and so, I mean, for example, Scott Walker, who's backing, you know, the Trump campaign, who won, you know, election as a Republican governor of Wisconsin a number of times, right? Um, you know, he talked about the Wisconsin recount. He said, look, I mean, like, you can recount, but it's not going to change 20,000 votes. He said, we've done recounts in Wisconsin when I was governor, right? And we're talking about 130 votes or 311 votes, right? I mean, so there's errors and there's little errors, but they're, they're you know, they make a difference when it's really tight, right? So, I mean, you can think about, you know, the 2000 election, which is a totally different animal. It comes down to one state and that state is separated by a few hundred votes. That's a legitimate question of who won this, right? And because a few hundred votes actually makes a difference. What we're seeing is states where, you know, the closest margin right now we have is about 10,000 in Georgia, right? You're not going to overturn that with a recount. Yeah. And this is hard for people to hold in their, in their minds, but the results of these elections, because of the large number of votes, are simultaneously close, yep. but also not close in the right. sense that um, there might be enough error to overturn the, the race itself. Right, and right. 
Yeah, because I mean, like like Trump in in you know twenty sixteen won Michigan by a very narrow margin, but by a very narrow margin, we still mean like sixteen thousand votes. It was not close enough to be questionable. It was like, wow, that was really tight, mm-hmm. and clearly he won, right? Um, and so that's the kind of thing we're talking about this time too. So with that in mind, and I would add one more complicating factor, which is because of the red shift and blue shift that we talked about, mm-hmm. where uh, Biden had a lead and then it eroded, or Trump had yeah. a lead, often cases, and that eroded, uh, there has been a lot of perception of fraud yeah. on behalf yeah. of, uh, held by Americans, especially Americans who supported Trump, that this electoral process was, um, was fallacious in some kind of a way. Yeah. So. We, w- we wanted to also present some, some information about whether Americans trust the electoral process and what are the trends in that level of trust. And so, Matt, why don't you explain what we're looking at here? Um, so this um, data, and I'll show you a couple of slides here, um, is data from the Morning Consult, um, which is a, a, you know, a pretty good polling firm. And basically, they're asking uh, voters if they trust the election system in the United States. And it might be a little bit difficult for those of you who are online to see this, I'm not sure. Um, But basically, Democrat and Republican uh, trust in the election system um, were basically fairly closely tied, um, sort of at the beginning of sort of peak electoral season in September, running up through basically the end of October. Um, But then interestingly, you started to get this sort of separation, um, especially um, around the time of Election Day. Um, And so it turns out that Democrats, um, you know, as the results became clear, um, came to trust the system more, and Republicans um, trust the system far less. Now, it's also helpful to put this in historical perspective as well. Yep. Um, so it's always been the case in the past generation um, that the winning side trusts the results more than the losing side. Um, but this partisan gap has been rising. It has been increasing basically in every election. So go back to 1992, um, you know, the partisan gap was only was only you know, 14 points, which is still something, but it's not huge. Um, the most recent election in 2016 of Trump versus Clinton, you have 34% of Republicans, excuse me, 73% of Republicans believe that the system was fair. So it was just four years ago, and 39% of Democrats um, disagreed. But now it's the, the gap has basically doubled, right? So it turns out that now Democrats trust the system, believe that it's free and fair by whopping 90%, but only 26% of Republicans actually trust this. This is a 64 point gap. Um, And this is significant for our democracy. Yeah. We've talked a lot in previous podcasts about polarization Mm -hmm. uh, in the United States. My students are reading a book about polarization in our (laughs) senior seminar. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, we're talking about um, a, a lack of trust in the system. And what I would say up front is that I'm surprised especially that first chart you showed, about how low overall electoral support was at the outset. And so looking here just briefly, um, we have Republicans with about a 72, back in September, sort of a 72% belief uh, in in trusting the electoral process. Uh, Democrats sitting at like 62%, and then those numbers sort of switched. But that means that there's a huge chunk of the American population on the left and the right that doesn't believe in our electoral process even though I would argue we have broadly a very fair process once ballots are cast. Uh, There are some significant issues of getting people to the polls, making the polls available to people uh, on both sides. But once the votes are cast, the process is pretty uh, robust. Right, and I think that's maybe a good point you're raising, Chris, that 
mean, people could be interpreting this in different ways, right? So, I mean, one thing you might be interpreting, for example, if you live in a minority community, right, where there is just not really good access to polls, right? And you're, and you're saying, like, every time I go, I have to stand in line for three hours. I'm also working a job. I don't really have three hours to take to go stand in line to cast a ballot. Um, you know, that, that also might lead you to say, I don't trust this electoral system a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's working for people like me, right? Um, which is a fair point. So I think that this could be some people who are saying, we don't trust that the votes are being counted right, and other people who are saying, I'm, I'm rating this low because it is, um, you know, it is not accessible, right? It is not, it is not equal. I'm seeing like the one, there's one way that suburban voters are being treated and one way inner city voters are being treated or things like that. So I think there could be a couple, a couple reasons, more than, maybe more than a couple reasons why people are um, not trusting the system. And but I, we should. I, I suspect with the parties there's a divide too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and we should talk about the elephant in the room, which is Trump claiming Absolutely. that the system is entirely yep. rigged yep. Um, against him. Right? And this is not a new statement. Right. He said he was saying this back in 2016 right. when his campaign was anticipating a loss to Hillary Clinton. Yep. He was claiming um, it was rigged then, and he said even earlier this year, uh, right. in the midst of the coronavirus, that the only way Joe Biden could beat him is if the system was rigged against him. Right. Right. So there was a setup of a series of narratives about this. Um, he's I'm sorry. So I was gonna, so so you know, given this, you know, it's interesting. Even over the past you know couple of days, how a number of prominent you know Republican elected officials have basically. I mean, a few of them have you know come out and said you know yes, this election you know has been riddled with fraud. So you right. know, Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, I think, you know, went on Fox News and said this. Um, but you know, a number of senators are not going that far, but they're saying like, well, we need to let the process play out. We're not. You know, we agree that Trump should not concede and that there should be ongoing litigation. And I have a couple of theories about about why this is the case, but I'd be curious to get you guys' thoughts on this. So the the modal statement from from prominent Republicans, I think, is typified by Mitch McConnell, who said um, every legal vote should be counted and the president has every right to pursue every legal recourse to make sure that all legal votes are counted. Right, which is a very, um, a little bit mealy-mouthed way of saying, I'm happy to let the president run through all these potential uh, legal, legal scenarios, and I'm happy right. to see if he can throw out votes we think are not going to work in our favor, and then we'll see what happens after that. Now, all that to say, it's, I th- we, as we've said, we think it's unlikely that's going to change the voting process, but it does set up the president to do a couple things post-election. Right, Andy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, go ahead. You want to... Um, if, uh, if it fits within uh, Donald Trump's narrative to say that uh, um, the election is unfair and biased against him and, um, and, and fallacious, it gives him a way to de- delegitimize the Biden campaign. Um, I think it's extremely unlikely that Donald Trump concedes ever. Um, I think we will get to January 20th and Inauguration Day without the president having conceded uh, uh, to his challenger. Um, and I think that sets him up to potentially work for, at the very least, control and influence in the Republican Party, and possibly even a 2024 run. Yeah, I think that's, that's possible. Um, the other thing we've talked about is just like, I mean, whether he's, he's playing this for the sake of fundraising, for the, sec, you know, for the sake of like, retiring campaign debt, it's easier to get people to continue donating if you're still running a live campaign than to say, hey, can you help me pay it off? Because then people are like, wait, you're really rich. Why can't you pay off your own debt, <laughs> right? Um, and, and he has based a lot of his appeal on himself being very rich, right? So I think there, um, you know, that, that could be um, part of the game he's playing here, too. But I think a lot of it just comes down to me. Like, he's, you know, Donald Trump really bases his kind of value, right, in his sense of being a winner, 
Um, and he, he just struggles to admit being, even being wrong, let alone being defeated, right? Um, and so he really can't, I think, in some ways square that circle in his mind that, you know, I could lose. So therefore, you just can't admit that it's happened, right? Yeah. And which is less interesting to me because it's, uh, you know, Trump par excellence, right? Yeah. What's more interesting is, is sort of the tack that, you know, Republican elected yeah. officials who, you know, have, have never been, you know, you know, fully on board with every single thing Trump has done. So why are they behaving in this way? And so I have sort of two theories, and it's, it, this is going to depend on the official, right? So one theory yeah. is that Trump is basically the future of the Republican Party, even if he doesn't run in 2024, which he probably will if he's able. Um, you know, even if he doesn't run, he, he's going to try to play kingmaker. Um, he's going to try to use his influence and his, you know, brand of politics, which has been quite successful within a certain part of the country, um, that that brand is going to continue to have real influence. Um, he just set up a political action committee, actually, to, um, you know, to basically yeah. support, you know, Republican candidates that basically meet the Trump brand of, of Republican politics. So that's the first theory. The second theory, and, and so basically the Republicans who are moving that direction basically don't want to alienate Trump himself or alienate Trump's core supporters. My second theory is that is for maybe for everyone else, right? So they're waiting out and maybe even supporting just the litigation process and the recount process because they don't want to alienate Republicans who don't, don't necessarily love Trump himself, right? They might like his policies, but they're concerned that the election, as yes. we've seen, isn't free and fair. And so the idea is like, hey, you know, McConnell's probably think we're going to let it play out. And then hopefully this will prove to enough people, enough Republican voters, maybe not Trump's core base, but enough Republican voters that, hey, you know, we did due diligence, we did everything we could, but now we're going to have to move on. It'll be interesting to see in the coming weeks, you know, especially by the time we get close to Christmas and all of the votes have been validated, what these Republicans do at that juncture, whether or not they signal that it's time to move on or whether or not they continue to sort of talk about how the election wasn't fair. Yeah, I think that's... I think those, those theories are both pretty plausible in terms of like what might be going on. I do think it's interesting when you look at Republicans who are kind of outside this process, right? And so I'm thinking especially of like, you know, former President George W. Bush, right? The, the one living um, former Republican, right, who does come out right after the declaration, right? And, you know, say, good job, Trump, on a hard-fought campaign. You won a lot of votes. Congratulations to our President-elect Joe Biden, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that one is... One of the few Republicans who's actually done One that. of the very few Republicans, right? And he's in a unique position to do that as somebody who's obviously not facing voters again um, and who is thinking, you know, like a former president, okay, what do we need to do to try to bring the country together as opposed to, you know, kind of what's necessarily in the best interest of Republican Party officials in this moment, right? And so um, that is striking to me that, like, some this, you know, Bush is hardly a fan of, you know, Biden and the Democrats, right? But at the same time, he's looking at this and saying, you know, this is where we are, um, and so let's call a spade a spade. Um, Republicans, for, I think, probably for the strategic reasons Matt's pointing us to, are reluctant to do that yet. We'll see where we are in a month. I will say there was a, a very influential piece by Barton Gelman in the, in the Atlantic a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, uh, describing all the various uh, ways that our system is not well set up to a president who doesn't concede. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That there's a lot of yeah. normative power in a president conceding the election and allowing a transition to occur to their successor. Mm -hmm. And because Trump hasn't and probably won't concede, there's a number of things that could happen that are pretty uh, dangerous in terms of constitutional crisis for the United States. I will say this, most of those things have not happened yet. Yes. Uh, the president has not sought to mobilize the military. He's not sought to suppress vote counting. He has not sought to get state legislatures to intervene and send a, ba uh, a, a ballot of electoral college electors.
doors, uh, irrespective of their state's vote count. So all of those things, uh, we've dodged a lot of the really damaging things to democracy, other than claiming that the system is fraudulent, which is itself deeply damaging to democracy. Mm -hmm. Guys, we gotta talk about polls. 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 Um, and not, by the way, uh, the, the, the wonderful nation of Poland, who after <laughs> Donald Trump tweeted, someone needs to check the polls, P-O-L-E-S, the ambassador from Poland responded and said, we're doing just fine, thanks. Uh, we love the polls. <laughs> but we're glad you're thinking of us in this moment of crisis, <laughs> Mr. President. So let's talk about polling data. Um, what do we know? In, in retrospect, it looks like things were a disaster. Um, were they actually really a disaster? <laughs> sort of not really. Okay, I want to lay out um, sort of some key results, but I want to say a few things first. So, first of all, there is still accounting going on. There are right. hundreds of thousands of ballots across the United States that are still being counted. It's going to take a few weeks before we have final results. We need to wait for yes. this. Waiting is yes. hard. We've all been waiting, right? But I want uh, it now. Uh, I know, right? Christmas is coming, guys. So, <laughs> but, but we got to wait, probably to at least the end of November. Um, but, of course, um, the, the media narratives and the conventional wisdom are already beginning to form. Um, and so that, those will probably be sort of semi-solidified before we're actually able to do any sort of sophisticated analysis. So, right. so we will do future, probably a future election shock therapy episode in which we do sort of a, a more rigorous polling post-mortem. Um, so a few other things. So it was always a strong possibility that Biden was going to win, but by a relatively narrow margin. Um, this is something that responsible pollsters and forecast modelers have been saying all along, right? Mm -hmm. Like there are scenarios in which Biden wins by a relatively close amount. It doesn't take a large number of votes properly distributed across certain swing states um, to basically turn a close electoral college race into an electoral college blowout. You shift a few votes across right. a few states and all of a sudden, you know, Biden goes from winning 310 electoral co college votes to like 350, right? right? Which, of course, affects the narrative, yep. even though yep. the, the absolute popular vote might have only shifted by a percentage point. So that's another thing to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. um, also, every presidential election, there is a polling error of an average of three to four points. That is normal, right? So, so that should be your baseline when you're thinking about these numbers. There's going to be, and, and that figure translates to states as well, state polling errors as well. So that should be the baseline. It's not zero, it's three to four points. And so if you see something more like five, six, seven, eight points, then you're talking about the real polling error that pollsters are going to have to deal with. And there were some states in which there was that order of polling miss, um, like Ohio, potentially Florida, maybe some other states as well. Pollsters are going to have to sort that out. Mm -hmm. Also, the final thing to keep in mind is you should try to look at polling aggregates. Don't look at particular pollsters. I mean, you might want to think about whether or not a particular pollster is accurate or not, but you want to look at an average of all the polls. So. Basically, it turned out to be a competitive election that was a little bit more competitive than some of the polls suggested. So polling was a mixed bag. It was bad in some states. It was good in other states. Um, and we'll sort of diagnose the polling problems at a later point. But here are some highlights. So looking at our slide here. So there are states that um, Biden um, was, had a polling lead, Florida and North Carolina, but lost. These are the only states. Um, and it turned out that the polling error in Florida and North Carolina was within the margin of error, it looks like, at this point. Um, yep. So, and there weren't any states in which Trump had a polling lead but lost. So, um, so that's not a bad track record in some ways, if you think right. about it that way. Um, and if you look at the Senate, um, there was two cases in which you had a Senate race in which the Democrat had a polling lead, 
but they ended up um, losing. This was the case in North Carolina and Maine. Um, these are sort of exceptional races um, because Susan Collins, the Republican in Maine, is sort of an amazing politician who manages to sort of snatch victory from the jaws of defeat repeatedly. Um, so Maine's sort of an exception. In North Carolina, there was a big scandal, right, that mm -hmm. seemed to probably sink the Democrat there um, at the last minute. And there were no Senate races in which there was a Republican polling lead, um, but the Republican lost. So overall, actually not a bad track record. Um, a few other things to note. There are a couple of um, Biden states in which you did have a Republican who won their Senate race. So you're going to see this in Maine with Susan Collins, but Biden won Maine. Um, you might see this in Georgia as well. Once we have the runoffs, the Republicans will likely win, but it looks like Biden's also going to win Georgia. So you do see some divergence. And in states in which there's divergence, it can be hard to predict um, how things are going to shake out. Um, polls can have a difficulty sort of sussing out which direction things are going to go when it's really close. Yep. Um, the final thing I'll note here is that it turns out that Republicans on down-the-ballot races, so Senate, House, and also state legislative races down-the-ballot, tended to overperform Donald Trump. Um, so Republican senators tended to overperform Trump by 1.9 points. And House Republicans tended to overperform Trump by about 1.4 points, according to the data we have right now. Now, Matt, Chris. can we say if that overperformance was a result of Trump being a particularly poor Republican candidate or Biden being a stronger-than-usual Democratic candidate, or can we not tell that for this point? Um, so it would seem like red is... I don't know. I mean, it seems to me that generally there was a lot of support for sort of Republican republicanism in general right mm -hmm. um, but some of that support got chipped away at the very top of the ticket right because trump was the one was the republican that did the least well mm -hmm. in the races right um, which also seems to suggest that um, by the way that there wasn't widespread election fraud committed by democrats um, because why sort of you know throw the election to just biden why not throw it to um, all the democrats on down the ballot races as well it turns out um, if this was election fraud, it was a, a singular failure, right? Um, because you didn't <laughs> really even, poorly give, planned you didn't even give Biden the Senate. Like, how, how, how could you fail um, so yeah. spectacularly? But I, right. I digress. Right, and failing in places where it looked like you were going to win, right? Like, right. it looked like pretty, so people felt very bullish about, like, you're going to win this, this race for the Democrats, and they lost it, right? Uh, I think that's interesting. I think you're right, Matt. We don't really have the data yet to know why this overperformance is happening. If I had to suspect, right, I would suspect it's people like John Kasich, right? I mean, so John Kasich goes to the Democratic convention. He speaks on behalf of Joe Biden, not because he really agrees with him on policy, because John Kasich's actually a, a pretty conservative Republican, but because he says Donald Trump is problematic for the institutions of the United States, right? For the reasons we've been talking about, right? The undermining of um, the system of democratic values. And so we need to defeat this president, right, because of those factors. At the same time, I s strongly suspect that John Kasich probably voted for a lot of Republicans, just not that one, right? <laughs> and I think there is, there's a slice of those, right? Of these kind of never Trump Republicans are saying, we can't vote for this president. We're still Republicans for all the reasons we've always been Republicans, but we just find this particular president really problematic. Um, my guess is that's reflecting some of that more than some sort of incredibly compelling, like sort of Joe Biden appeal. We have a broad question here. I'm going to fold right. uh, two questions together and we'll, we'll wrap with this, guys. Um, I'll give you the option. You can talk about what this election means <laughs> or you can talk about what it means going forward from here. So let's, let's look outward a little bit. Uh, we still have a lot of this election left to wrap up, a lot of the heavy data analysis. So these things are subject to change. But where do we go from here? 
What does this mean? <laughs> um, so again, you know, people are trying to figure out what elections mean. It's hard to determine this because voting is a blunt instrument in a yep. system in which you have a binary choice between two political parties that are big coalitions, right? right? And so this means for every office, people have a binary choice, and and you can choose one side or the other for a whole host of reasons, right? It's not like you have a, we have a multi-party system in which you're voting for one party is because you really support that party's platform, right? We don't have that here, right? Mm -hmm. You're you're voting not only on platforms, you're voting on personalities, right, and what they represent. Um, and so that so you know if we're going to talk about the meaning of the election, we should look at what the meaning is for particular groups. Why particular, you know, chunks of the population tended to vote a certain way, you know, on the presidency versus perhaps other down the ballot races. So that's right. that's my initial caveat that we should sort of lay out there. I think. Yeah, I think that's well stated. And I think I mean, one of the answers to this too is like meaning is is based on the interpretation that the parties give to it afterwards, right? And so like we're already getting one initial take within the Democratic caucus, right, in the House of. We lost ground in the House because we let the progressives drive the narrative too far to the left. And that harmed, you know, sort of centrist Democrats, people like a Colin Peterson, right, who is much more moderate, um, but got dragged down, right, by this sort of like the sense that the party is just too far out there for people in western Minnesota and we can't support um, a representative who would stand with those people anymore, right? Uh, it's that kind of narrative about sort of like what happened. So that's one, what's one narrative, right? The progressives obviously are pushing back against that and saying, mm -hmm. no, what we really need is more of the, you know, what we're doing, right? Um, and we need to give people really clear ideas. We have them, you don't. Um, we need to push in that direction. The things we were talking about earlier with Donald Trump, right? Like, you know, do, do officials continue to line up behind him or do they start walking away from his, you know, it seemed like pretty baseless claims about election fraud, right? Um, that's going to shape how we end up interpreting the meaning of this election. Um, do we interpret this as like, wow, this is the moment when the Republican Party just lost confidence in the system? Or is this a blip, right? Where they do in the moment because they're heated about this loss. Um, and then as those numbers show us, um, they go back to feeling pretty good about it the next time they win, right? Um, so there's a lot of like a lot of the meaning of the election is going to get hashed out in the way the parties interpreted that. We're starting to see some of that, but we're we're one week out, right? That's going to happen in the weeks and the months and even the years um, that are to come. One fi final thing we can say with complete confidence is that partisanship okay. is strong, right? Yes. <laughs> I mean, yes. so think of think of the year we've had, folks, right? right. It's been over the past right. twelve or fourteen months. So we had, you know. All the impeachment hearings, you know, last year, and then we had yep. impeachment. Um, we've had a pandemic. We've had, you know, basically right. this this huge economic hit, right? We've yep. had racial unrest. We've had, you know, widespread right. rioting, right? We've had quite the year, and and the year just keeps on giving gifts to us, right? It, it's just it's <laughs> nuts, right? So it's it's astonishing that if you look at the polls, the partisan yep. polling yep. over this time. It's been so stable, right? Yeah, I should have put up a, a chart of this, right. but you can look at, you know, sort of approval ratings of Trump, or you yeah. can look at basically, you know, who identifies as a Republican or supports Republicans or Democrats, and it is so stable, right? And that's amazing, right? right. How stable that is. So all the partisan chickens basically came home to roost in this election. That said, despite the fact that there, you know, basically was this really strong divide that right. never really shifted throughout the whole year. It is interesting that in the end, Biden is probably going to win the popular vote by about five percentage points, right? So even though, you know, Republicans yeah. and Democrats were very evenly matched all the way down the ballot, I mean, we were going to see almost no shift in like the state legislative control by the right. parties, right? right? It's interesting that Biden still um, sort of overperformed, right, you might say, yeah. in the popular vote. Um, and I think that's significant. I think we're going to have to sort of take that into account um, whenever we start to build our explanations of what happened. Yep. 
I'll take the looking forward part uh, by way of CODA before we transition to Q&A, which is I take to heart what Matt said at the beginning, which is this was a binary choice between two parties that have broad, diverse coalitions inside of them. Right. And I think this really clarified for the Democrats uh, two coalitions, and it will be interesting to see who wins that tug of war. Will yeah. it be sort of the more progressive uh, Democratic Socialist left, uh, sort of Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, and other sort of uh, avatars on, on that side of the party, or will it be sort of the more Connor Lamb, Colin Peterson, Joe Biden sort of side of the party? And there will be a tug yeah. of war there. Um, Clearly, the advantage goes to the Biden side because of not only his election, but also because the Democrats did not have this right. landslide blue wave type of election. On the, on the Republican side, I, th I want to propose to you, gentlemen, that there are actually four lanes, and much like a subway system, you can only put your feet on two of them. So here are my four lanes. You ready okay. for this? There's Trump. The Trump lane is most easily occupied by Donald Trump, but it can also be occupied by Don Jr., um, or somebody else who strongly right. affiliates themselves with the Trump name and brand. There's also the uh, nationalist not Trump. So it's somebody who says, boy, that Trump guy, he's kind of a character. Yeah. Uh, he's really offensive. But I hold a lot of his ideas. Right. I like um, a very strong immigration control. I like um, some of the ways he's approached um, um, uh, various policy issues, but I'm not him. I'm like right. I'm the the nice version of that. Trump isn't without Trump. Trump isn't without Trump. The th the third uh, lane is just social conservatism. This is the sort of direct appeal to evangelical voters, white evangelical voters especially, staunchly pro-life, uh, opposed to LGBTQ issues, um, and and moving from there. And then the fourth lane, probably the weakest lane at this point, is the libertarian lane. Um, this is the maybe the Paul Ryan. Um, We're the libertarians. What are you talking about? Uh, uh, it's, it's the it's the <laughs> debt has gotten too big. Spending right. is too big. We we need small government. And we need it now. I want to argue that you can put your foot on two of those lanes. You can't do more than two. Mm -hmm. uh, you can't be the social conservative and the libertarian and the Trumpist or the not Trumpist. You can be social conservative and not a nationalist, not Trump. You can be social conservative and Trump, but you can only do two. And whoever the candidate is that emerges as a likely front runner in 2024 is going to pick two of those things to be. Right. I think what this demonstrates, I mean, if you put um, sort of Americans along sort of two continuums, like an X and Y axis, right? You get your sort of conservatism, like social issue continuum, and then you get your economic issue continuum. And Trump has demonstrated sort of the power um, and sort of the area, the coalitions that can be built um, in the quadrant in which you have people who are relatively socially conservative, but relatively economically liberal, right? Um, the Republican Party has always tried to sort of straddle some of these things. Um, but Trump has basically, basically shown us that, you know what, most Republicans never really believed in really limited government and um, you know, fiscal responsibility or you know, economic conservatism. Right. But there's a lot of power there's a lot of votes to be had in the quadrant in which people are relatively socially conservative, but also, you know, like some big government, like government spending, like government programs, you know, government right. doing stuff for us, right? Um, you know, not just among whites, but, uh, you know, also amongst, you know, racial and ethnic minorities as well, right? Mm -hmm. Who tend to be, you know, somewhat more socially conservative, but more economically liberal. And that might be one of the reasons why Trump made considerable advances amongst some in the Hispanic community, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. All right, we're nearly at the end of our time here. We promised you we'd leave some time for Q&A. Uh, Sam, do we have some Q? We do. All right. All right, uh, so here is our, we have two questions. Here's our first question. Uh, are you aware that the Trump campaign administration has made a statement 
that the transition will happen once they confirm the election results are fair and reasonable. So have they made any statements about that? Can you talk about transition? There have been uh, hints and allegations, to quote um, uh, Paul <laughs> Simon. The several people inside the Trump administration have intimated exactly that statement, but to my knowledge, Donald Trump himself has not said such a thing. He's not indicated that a transition would ever have to happen or be necessary because he's won the election. Right. 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 Yeah. And I mean, on that, I mean, there's been a divide amongst sort of, you know, in the White House staff on what direction to go. And I think some of the White House staff see the writing on the wall and they can actually start working on some of the transition, you know, working with the people in the incoming administration to carry over, you know, just all of the information that are that is relevant to transition. So Trump right. doesn't necessarily have to sign off on some of that for some of his team to actually begin that process. And you can begin that process even while litigation moves forward. One thing to pay attention to, I'll just add this at the end, Trump's appointee in the GSA, the General Services Administration, has to sign off on a transition plan which will allow the Biden, incoming Biden administration to have hmm. office space and budget to conduct the transition itself. Trump's appointee has not signed off on that yet, but that would be a first sign that the transition is actually taking place. All right, the second question is a, a general one that comes up around this time, I feel like after, after a presidential election. Uh, in the larger context, what is the role of the Electoral College in a contested election like this? What are some clear lines of what can and can't be done? Matt, do you want to field that? Yeah, sure. Okay, so let me walk you through the process. Um, so basically, December 8th is a deadline for states to certify their electoral votes um, and basically um, issue sort of the list of the final list of electors that are going to be casting their ballots. So December 8th is when the states have to basically declare these are the results of the their several elections, right? right. On December 14th, the electors, the chosen electors meet in the capitals of their states to vote. Um, this is the official presidential election, is December 14th, actually. <laughs> then on December 23rd, the Electoral College vote is sent to the Senate where it's certified in the Senate. On January 3rd, the new Congress is sworn in. And three days later, on January 6th, there is a joint session of the House and the Senate that counts the Electoral College votes and then declares the results. At this juncture, one member of the House and one member of the Senate can join together and issue an objection um, on behalf of one of the candidates and try to dispute the election. At this point, um, basically, if this happens, the House and the Senate will recess to a two-hour and only a two-hour discussion on the merits of the objection. And at the end of the two hours, they will take a vote on whether or not to sustain the objection. The objection has to be sustained by both the House and the Senate. Of course, by this point, you know, we know the House is going to be controlled by the Democrats. In the Senate, you know, you're probably going to see some Republicans jumping on board um, to basically throw out the objection. So basically, Congress will not sustain the objection if one is made. And basically, at that point, it is declared who the president's going to be. The president is inaugurated on January 20th. And that's that. <laughs> so... So pretty simple, basically. <laughs> it, it is. It's, it, we, we kind of know how this is going to play out. Oh, wow. and in some it's ways, messy. let me just say, as we wrap this up, this is kind of reassuring, right, guys? Yeah. Uh, as much as we worried about various uh, permutations of how this election could go, the system works fairly cleanly. It's very close. There's contestation. That's good. Let's get the votes right um, so that we can, we can have somewhat more uh, public confidence in the voting process. Uh, this whole thing was just a quick preview of all the various <laughs> kinds of topics we talked about election shock therapy. Uh, you can always join us. We have put out a, a, this whole uh, fall, we put out a weekly podcast. We'll be doing weeklies at least for a little while longer. Um, and so check us out. Our channel uh, on Podbean is channel 3900. 
you can always find us there, uh, along with a bunch of other great stuff produced here at Bethel, including uh, Tweet Victory, Avatar with Academics, Bookish at Bethel, uh, at Video Store as well. So check all those things out. You can email our show at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com, and you can email the channel at channel3900 at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, gentlemen. Thank you for joining us. It's been great. Um, yeah. And until you hear us next time in the podcast feed, go Royals. Go Royals.